morning, everyone. I trust that you will be. I trust that you will be eager to turn to the scripture passage this morning. It's found in Nehemiah chapter six. Thank you. It's found in Nehemiah chapter six. Our scripture reading this morning on page four hundred and ninety in the pew Bibles. Our coverage today is actually rather sizable. Uh, It extends all the way to the end of chapter 7, which is 73 verses long. Uh, You'll be glad to know that I don't intend to read all 73 verses, not because it's not significant, but for the sake of time. And so we'll just read up till the long list of names and numbers, and then I'll comment later on those. So Nehemiah 6, reading from verse 15, a very decisive point in the story, in the book. So the wall, namely Jerusalem's wall, was completed. On the 25th of Elul, in 52 days... When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts, and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return. This is what I found written there. And then we get this lengthy genealogy, these names and numbers of those who had returned 80 years previous. And you're more than welcome to read that later this afternoon. This is God's word. In one of his typically quotable sayings, Winston Churchill once said, We shall neither falter nor fail. We shall not weaken nor tire. Give us the tools, and we will finish the job. 
Churchill's rallying cry could well have been the motto, the very words on the lips of these Jews we've been studying in the 5th century BC. Nehemiah and his Jewish companions had for two arduous, dangerous, and difficult months worked with their hearts and their hands to erect this wall of Jerusalem. Their determination neither to fail nor falter, neither to weaken nor tire, but with tools in hand to complete and to finish the work that God had entrusted to them. And what an important job this task was. These walls of Jerusalem were much more than merely ornamental or decorative. Jerusalem's wall helped realize the very security of the people of God. Jerusalem's wall represented the very liberty, independence, and the glory of the people of God. And yet this wall had lay in ruins for 150 years until now. For in these recent and strange days, this wall was being raised up, brick by brick, section by section, and day after day, until one day, to the astonishment of the foes of the Lord's people, the job was done. How satisfying it is when the Lord gives us a work to do, And the time comes when we finish the work. Our first heading this morning is a work completed. A work completed. I'm getting that straight out of verse 15 in the Bible before you. So the wall, Jerusalem's wall, was completed. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious here, this, of course, means that the wall of the city was finished in its entirety. We all know of the workmen who leave the job half finished, who leave the job three quarters done. Uh, You're always trying to get them on the phone, but you can only reach their voicemail. Uh, They never seem to come and finish that last little piece, that last little part of the job. But such wasn't the case with this wall. No, the wall, says Nehemiah, was completed. Indeed, it's almost as if to underline this, that the the very next thing that is said is the date of completion. We're told that it was in the 25th of Elul, of this particular month on the 25th day. There was a day that you could mark down in the history book when the job was done, when the wall was finished when everything in regard of it was completed. There was no follow-up jobs for the workmen to come back and do. It was finished in its entirety. It was also finished, notice, with great brevity. Again, if you've been involved in building projects of any kind, any kind of construction, you will know that often work takes much longer than you anticipate or hope. And that job with the conservatory that you thought would be four weeks to be finished turns out to be four months to be finished. 
More rarely does a project take less time than we anticipate to begin with. But this construction of this one-and-a-half-mile city wall, remember, this huge structure, it takes, I think, much less time than any of us could envisage. As well as the date of completion, verse 15, we're given the duration of the completion of the project. In 52 days. You could almost put an exclamation after that. An exclamation mark, couldn't you? In 52 days. This is so rapid that some liberal commentators have suggested it is not only remarkable, but impossible that these Jews could have finished this job in less than eight weeks. Usually what then happens is that the conservative interpreters seek to defend the pace of things. And they point out a number of contributing factors to the quickness of it. They say uh, that there was massive manpower involved. And that was true. This wasn't a couple of tradesmen and their dog trying to put up uh, a wall. The entire city was mobilized to build this. And then they usually also point out that that this wall was not being built from scratch, as it were. It was a rebuilding project. And with the exception of the eastern wall, uh, where there was really nothing except the foundation to build on, the rest of, of the city wall had at least some kind of structure in place that would then be built up from that setting. But as significant as these contributing factors are, I think we shouldn't be too quick to explain away the speed of this building. For after all, it is this very speed that causes the surrounding nations to be amazed, to recognize the hand and the help of something supernatural, of something out of this world. Did you notice that? The uh, surprising testimony as God's enemies testify to the work of God. Verse 16, when all of them heard about this, somebody came and reported the news. The wall's finished in 52 days. And when they heard about it, the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized. What was it they realized? It was that this work was done with the help of our God. It's a surprising testimony because earlier in this story, these same folk had been laughing at the Jews and mocking their project. Now, they are magnifying the work of God, the work of Israel's God. This is what you call irony, folks. This is what you call the shoe or maybe the sandal being on the other foot. Because earlier on, these surrounding nations, these enemies, they had sought to terrify the Jews. They had sought to scare the life out of them. Now, they themselves were afraid. These surrounding nations had puffed out their chests, they had mocked and they had laughed, but now, we're told, they had lost their self-confidence. Because they realized that this was beyond mere human effort. It was a construction done with the help of God himself. It wasn't just the Jews who built the wall of Jerusalem. Although, humanly speaking, it was their hands that did it. It was with the help of God. 
In fact, to some extent, we could even say that God completed this project despite some of his people. Uh, It's very striking, isn't it? In verses 17 and 19, while we're coming to the crescendo of this completion, and you're thinking, these uh, Jerusalem folk are doing an impressive job, that we actually read that at this very moment, this very apex of the work, there were some Jews who were threatening to compromise the whole thing. Verse 17, also in those days, while some were doing good work, the nobles of Judah were in danger of undoing it. Uh, They they were getting into league with one of God's enemies. They were getting a little bit too cozy with this man called Tobiah. The thing with Tobiah that set him apart from some of the other leaders of God's enemies was that he was himself probably uh, Jewish by extraction. And so some people didn't regard him as quite uh, such an enemy. And he was trying to wheedle his way into the affections of the hierarchy in Jerusalem. He himself was married into a Jewish family. And he had also strategically married off one of his sons into an influential family in Jerusalem. And he had also struck up trade agreements. You see there that some folks were under oath to him. Probably means that he had business agreements with them. And so by way of of marriage and by way of money, he was using these things to to get himself into the affections of some of the Jews and using this also to get intelligence on the work that was going on because they were reporting back, here's what Nehemiah is doing. They were, in fact, endangering the very security of the city. They were, in fact, putting into danger the whole project, corresponding with Tobiah by letters, verse 17, reporting to the enemy things that Nehemiah said, verse 19. Oh, it was certainly not all down to the people of God that the city wall of God's city was complete. Instead, God, in many ways, superseded some of the folly and the failure of his own. And so, The wall was completed, and the work, uh, at least this stage of it, was finished with the help of the Lord. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are someone who claims to follow the Lord Jesus, can I ask you, have you ever come to a point where you have, in fact, completed a particular period of ministry? Something maybe that you set out to do that you felt distinctly called to do by the Lord. And maybe it's been a few months, maybe hopefully it's been a few years, you've stuck at it, but you've actually come to a juncture where you've realized that this is the end of the line for that particular task. I think there are times, even in the medical round of church life, when that happens. Sometimes we feel as if it's a never-ending cycle, don't we? God sometimes says, this is a moment to close a chapter as a new chapter will no doubt open. And I hardly need to point out to you too that we also, as a church, are really at such a juncture corporately because we're coming to the end of a particular phase of ministry when after 17 years as a church, or, uh, is that right, Peter, 17? 
At least, he says, we're coming to the, the conclusion, not only of, of a portion and a phase in Peter's personal ministry, but actually a distinct phase in this church's ministry. And so I think the first lesson for us would be this. First of all, insofar as there are these distinct phases, let us be sure to complete the work and to finish it well. Let us be sure that there is no slackening off, that we aren't like those crooked tradesmen, you know, who leave things three quarters done, but don't go the full way. Let us be sure that we work right up to the mark and right up to the date of completion, whenever that is in July. And then when we get there, I think there's a second significant thing. May we also recognize as a community of God's people that inasmuch as anything has been achieved throughout this phase of ministry, it has been achieved, yes, with the work of people, but ultimately with the help and the hand of God. You know, in some cases, it has been because of us, in so much as we've been committed and we've been prayerful and we've been involved and we've been in sharing the gospel. But you know, in other cases, it's maybe been in spite of us and some of our, some of our foolishness, some of our slowness to respond to God's word. And yet we know that over this period, God has blessed us with conversions and with continuing discipleship. Even tonight, we'll see two people committing to the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. So let us be sure to give the glory to the Lord as even God's enemies manage to do. But as strange as it may sound, a work completed, uh, completion, even for this community in the Old Testament, was not the end of the story. That's strange, isn't it? Completion isn't the end of the story. At the end of, 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 here's what I think of this like. The end of a film these days isn't as predictable as it used to be, is it? It used to be in these old epics. Uh, the, the end of the, of the film was entirely predictable. And you could see it coming about three miles off as it built to the crescendo. Nowadays, dramas and, and films, they pride themselves in being unpredictable in plot lines, don't they? And you get to what you think is the end of the story, and suddenly there's a twist. And in fact, what you thought was the end is really just a new chapter of the story. It is a new phase of the story. And this can happen two or three times before you get to the conclusion. Well, that's what happens in, in Nehemiah 6 and 7. Because for this whole first half of the book, we've been focused on this wall. We've been thinking only about this wall and it being completed. And now in chapter 6, it's finished. And so you would think, close the book, end of the story, wouldn't you? But in actual fact, as we come into chapter 7, there is really, literally, a new chapter in the story. While Nehemiah 6 is the end of the building construction, Nehemiah 7 is the beginning of the community construction. You see, rebuilding the city walls was important, but it wasn't enough. What also had to be reconstructed, renewed, and reformed was the people of God within those city walls. Ministry is about more than bricks and mortar, isn't it? Ministry is about people. In its modern equivalent, God saved the church, which is primarily focused on its buildings, 
which is so obsessed with its latest million-pound building extension that it forgets with the pristine building to focus on the ministry with people. And the people are falling apart while the, the building is in wonderful shape. Well, Nehemiah was concerned not merely that the nice walls would be in place, but that the people would be what they ought to be. And so with these walls rebuilt, he he then moves on to focus on the people. And the first thing he does is he makes some people appointments. Verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah uh, makes a couple of strategic people appointments for the ongoing life of Jerusalem. In verse 2, he appoints new leaders. Two leaders, actually, uh, over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The first was a was a man named Hanani. Hanani was Nehemiah's brother. We met him early in the story. He was the one who came all the way to Persia to tell Nehemiah of the state of Jerusalem. He's obviously someone that Nehemiah can trust in this time when some of the other leaders weren't very trustworthy. And so he is appointed next to Nehemiah as one of the superiors over the city. And then Hananiah, with a similar name, but a different uh, individual. He's also appointed as joint commander-in-chief. So you've got Hanani and you've got Hananiah. There might be a little bit of a distinction in that Hananiah probably had more security oversight, and some suggest Hanani was a bit like the city mayor. Now, if you think about this, this is a little bit of a surprising uh, series of appointments, isn't it? Because Nehemiah really had been the epitome of a strong leader. You read these modern books on Nehemiah, and what are they about? They're about leadership. Here is a man who is par excellence in his ability to motivate the troops, in his ability to organize and lead a people. Why does Nehemiah need other men around him? And yet he recognizes the greater strength in a plurality of leaderships, of leadership. He appoints these two other men who will work alongside him, who will share the burden, share the load, who will give him counsel, who will help him be in other places where he cannot be. And this principle, of course, is carried over into the New Testament, where there is no such thing as the minister, as if There were only one under-shepherd in the church of God. What there is, clearly, is a plurality of leadership leadership who serve the Lord together. It is for the better of the church, just as it was for the better of the city that this is so. But then in addition, we're also told in verses 1 and 3 that appointments were made of guards and gatekeepers. Obviously, walls that are intact are a tremendous help in defending a city. But they are not enough, you know, just to put the walls up and then leave them. Walls need to be guarded. Gatekeepers must be put in place. Guards must be put to their posts. These are vitally important, aren't they, the people that do this? I'm told that the Great Wall of China, back in its heyday, was breached four times. Do you know how the enemies managed to get over the wall? The answer is, they didn't. They bribed the guards, and they let them through the gates. 
how important it is that there are the right kind of people as guards and gatekeepers, particularly protecting a city wall. And so the first of these in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7 is the gatekeepers. They were appointed and they were to be given uh, instructions by Hananiah and Hananiah. Uh, At the beginning of the day, they were not to open the gates till the sun was hot. In ancient cities, the gates were typically opened first thing in the morning. But Nehemiah says, don't do that. Don't do what all the other cities are doing. We're in a bit of a vulnerable condition at the moment. Wait till the sun is hot. Wait till it's noontime. And when all of the people in the city will be awake, so that we're not caught by surprise when the people are sleeping in the morning. And then at the end of the day, He says, make sure the gatekeepers know they must still be on duty right up until the point when the gates are closed. Never leave the gates unattended. And moreover, residents of Jerusalem would also be put on guard duty. You just imagine Nehemiah coming around, knocking on your door uh, and saying, while the building project is done, I've actually got a job for you. You're going to do a little bit of neighborhood watch for the sake of God's kingdom. And some of these folks were, were put on posts. Uh, these were probably actually stationed on the wall as lookouts. And other folks were simply left to patrol the streets and particularly to look after the area around their, about their own uh, house. That's why I call it a neighborhood watch. What wonderful protection Nehemiah put in place. And, you know, I could preach a whole sermon just here on the importance of vigilance, on the importance of watchfulness, on the importance of being on guard, as we take that into the New Testament, how we need people to indeed be guarding their homes. As we focused on parents this morning, to be guarding our homes from all the influences that will seek to infiltrate from the outside. And we need those within the church who are watchful of the enemy and the attacks that he will inevitably make. Well, suffice to say, Nehemiah appoints leaders. He appoints guards and gatekeepers. And then finally, in the people appointments, he appoints worshipers. Now, I really like this point. Uh, You would say, really, of course he appointed worshipers, wouldn't you? The people of Jerusalem were not merely some secular body of people. They were a religious group. They were the people belonging to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were God's chosen and his very special people. They were those who were to worship the Lord their God alone, to put no idols before him. And they had been instructed in great detail in the the books of the law how they would do this. And so Nehemiah is concerned that these commands will be fulfilled, that Jerusalem will be a place of worship and praise. It's not probably the second thing we would appoint, is it? It's actually the second appointment. He gets the the guards onto the gates. And the very second thing he does is appoint singers. This was a priority for Nehemiah. The very second thing he does. He recognized the priority in any city, as we should in any church too, of worship. How much more would this city of ours flourish, and every city, if we took care not only of the infrastructure, 
of the roads and the trams, but we took care of the worship. If we were not only concerned about the policing in the streets and the general quality of life, but we're concerned about the spiritual life of this community, this great community in Edinburgh. It was the first thing Nehemiah did. And it must be our priority as a church in worshiping God. So the work continues with people appointments. But it also continues, and this is the last uh, and long section, with family registrations. Family registrations. Verse 4 identifies yet another problem that Nehemiah faced. He had the problem that the people weren't worshiping, so he appoints singers and Levites. He had the problem that the city wasn't fully secure, so he he puts in place the gatekeepers and the guards. But now there's another problem. Verse 4, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Now, I'm not an expert in city management by any means, but I'm guessing that for a city to be successful, you need to have lots of people in it, and you need to have uh, uh, also houses, many houses in the city. Jerusalem had neither. It had few people and it had no houses. The story was that the people of God had returned from exile in Babylon 80 years before. It was a really brave move. They were leaving behind their luxurious lifestyle, and they were making this homecoming to Jerusalem with high expectations. But when they came to the city, you can imagine them seeing it in the distance. They first of all noticed that the walls were in ruins and in rubble. And then when they got into the city, they realized not only did they not have security without walls, but the place was just an utter mess. It was really no place to bring up a family. It was really no place to go about your daily life. And so what did the people do? Well, they decided to live on the outskirts of Jerusalem, not within the city, but just out with the city. And so what you found was that the population of Jerusalem was actually living in the countryside, in the the rural areas within a stone's throw. And Nehemiah's next big project in this book will be to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. He's put the walls in place. Now he wants the people to be back in place as well. We'll see how he does this more fully in chapter 11. It's going to be a very interesting study how the leaders uh, are the first to take up residence and then they do it by lots to see who else will have to move in. But the initial step that Nehemiah makes in this repopulation is in verse 5. He he gathers the people together to register them by families. Uh, He does this so that he knows who's who. He does this so that he knows what kind of numbers he's talking about. You obviously can't move around populations of people until you know who the people are. So he takes a census. He finds out the family names. He finds out the family numbers and where they are living. And then there's this interesting sidelight which extends for the whole rest of the chapter because as Nehemiah is carrying out this census, he uncovers an old ancient document. And the funny thing about this document is it's something quite parallel to what he's currently doing. It's an 80-year-old document, and as he reads it, he he realizes that it records 
the census that was taken 80 years prior when Jerusalem's forefathers had first returned. Uh, He's so excited about it that at the end of this chapter from verse 6, he gives us it in the entirety so that it wouldn't be lost to, to, to history and so that we can still read it today. Now, I think this would have been very helpful practically to Nehemiah to have this. First of all, it would turn out to be a handy document for the current registration because Nehemiah would have a head start. He would know uh, who the initial families were who returned, and so he could, he could be looking around for those families. It would help him with the current documentation. But as well as a comparison, I think he would also use this, no doubt, as an inspiration. I'm sure he would have taken this and shown it to people. I'm sure he would have taken this around and maybe read it to some of the folks out in the countryside. And what he might have said to them was, look, here were your forefathers. They were living in the luxury of Babylon. But here they are, names and numbers, all the folks who left all of that behind and came back to the rocks and the ruins and the poverty of Jerusalem. And so it would have been an inspiration to these great-grandsons and great-granddaughters who were being asked to leave behind the leafy life in the suburbs, in the countryside, and to move into the hustle and bustle and trial of the city. Well, this was just the beginning of Nehemiah's continuing work, and there will be lots more that he will do. There's another six chapters in this letter as to how he rebuilds the community. It is a, a reminder to us that while we may complete a phase in our work for God, nonetheless, until we are called to glory, there will always be another phase and another phase. It's a little bit uh, like G.I. Packer's wonderful illustration in his commentary. He says that this chapter is a little bit like uh, a group of mountain, mountaineers. And they're heading up a, a mountain. They, they have been following a guide, or maybe a couple of guides. And they're heading up this mountain, and for some time, they've been aiming at what looks like the summit. And they trudge their way up, and after a period of time, they get to the place. And for a brief moment, there's a bit of a celebration in the freezing cold as they feel that sense of achievement that they've completed. They've completed what they were aiming at. And then they look up and they see another ridge way high up in the distance. And they realize that while they've completed one stage, there's another stage to be reached, to be finished. I think that's very much an apt picture, an illustration of where we are as a church. And it may be also as an individual that you're ending a chapter. But friend, I want to challenge you to think about what's the next phase. If you're finishing up a ministry in the summer, we were hearing on Wednesday night of how some are finishing with the children's ministry in the summer, quite a number of people. I wonder what you folks are doing next. I wonder what your continuing work is. There's maybe some of you looking for another uh, chapter in terms of your service, and you're not sure what to do. Maybe God's going to call you to fill some of those gaps. If you've completed the work, what's going to be the continuing work that you go on to fulfill? 
It was really wonderful. I was sharing this on Wednesday night, and um, one of the things I, I was wondering, still after two days of study, was how does this passage relate to the Lord Jesus Christ? And one of our elders, uh, after I'd shared this thought, pray, prayed into it and essentially gave me my conclusion. So thank you to whoever that was. And prayed really about how this applies to Christ. Here's the thing. Because this completion and this continuation, these two things, very much are something we see an example of in the Lord Jesus. In terms of the completed work, the gospel truths are that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, you can mark it in a calendar in history, he took on human flesh. He lived for around 33 years. He was then condemned to die. He went to a cross willingly, and he died there a shameful and hideous death. And having lived a sinless life, he then died on a cross for the sins of the world, for people like you and like me who have rebelled against God. And this sin-bearing, this being punished for what we deserve, this was the task that Jesus had to bring to completion. And the wonderful thing is, as you read through the Gospels, as you see the journey, and it is, it's a trek up a long hill, as it were, all the way to Jerusalem, as Jesus comes to that point, as he's exhausted the wrath of God on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice so that everyone would hear it. He says, it is finished. It is completed, you might say. He had finished the work of redemption for sins. Utterly, the cross work was complete and it never needs to be repeated again. It's one of the great messages of the book of Hebrews. And if you are not a Christian this morning, then you need to know that it is on the basis of that completed work, something that's an objective historical fact, something that you can study, something that you can go back and look at. It's on the basis of that that your sins this morning can be forgiven, that you can establish a new reconciled relationship with God for whom you were made. It's on the basis of that work that is finished. But here's the next thing. Christ completed the work in dying for sin. But you know, as I then thought about that a little bit further, he also has a continuing work, doesn't he? Because the Bible tells us that having been raised from the dead, having ascended into heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That emphasizes, by the way, not only his authority, but the sense of completion. He sat down. And yet, we are also told that as he sits at the right hand of the Father, he is, if I may say it respectfully, speaking into the Father's ear. And he is interceding for the saints. His work for sin is completed, but his prayer for the saints is continuing and continuing and continuing even till this day. And so God calls us to to be a church that would follow in Christ's example, completing the work that God has for us, but then also asking, what's the next phase? What does God have for me to do now? Shall we pray?
Our Father, we thank you that you indeed give us the wonderful privilege of serving you. Father, that's an astounding thing, that it should be said that we do the work with your help. Lord, you don't need us to do anything to accomplish your purposes. But we thank you that it is this way, and it has been throughout the history of your people. And even today, Christ is building his church, and yet he is also using his church to build the church. And so, Lord, we wouldn't want to be those who are unfaithful. We wouldn't want to be those who do not complete what you give us to do. And so, whatever the personal application of that is for each of us, help us to take it seriously, to not stop short of the line. At the same time, Father, show us the new things and the next things that you have for this church and for all of us. And we pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.